11 years. In 1904, a 26-year-old named Evan Roberts was the catalyst that God used to send a great revival to the nation of Wales. Over a two-year period of time, over 100,000 people were saved. And the revival spread throughout the world. And what you may not know about that revival is this. Evan Roberts had prayed for revival for 11 years. 11 years of fervent, passionate prayer for God to move. And yet you and I have trouble praying for 11 minutes. Right? You see, prayer has incredible power, but it is a challenging practice. And I want us to think about prayer and its potential that we might be moved to put it into practice. And we're going to learn and be inspired by this morning the example of the early church. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. I'm going to ask you today, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. The Bible says, Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now look in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to what? Prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And we understand today we are a privileged people. We are privileged because we can call you Father. We are privileged because our sins have been washed away. We are privileged because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are privileged because of your presence here with us today. And we understand that all of those wonderful spiritual realities are only made available through your Son, Jesus Christ. So today we are grateful for the finished work of Jesus. We're grateful that Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to this earth and died for our sins and rose from the grave. And our desire today is that Jesus be lifted up, that his name be magnified, And God, that you would help us to understand what it looks like to be a praying church. And God, that you would 
that you would make us a praying church. Have your way in our midst for the glory of your great name. Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Acts is a narrative book written by a Gentile physician named Luke, and he was writing it to a man named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus, but he was writing a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke was explaining to Theophilus the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the, the work of Jesus Christ, and in the book of Acts, he wants to describe the work of Jesus through the first century church. And the un folding narrative of the church in the first century is thrilling. And there's much for us to learn, much for us to be encouraged by, much for us to be challenged by. And so we are excited about just working our way through the book of Acts. Now, to kind of set the immediate context of the passage that we read, we studied last week how Jesus gave his disciples some final instructions. And after his final instructions, his marching orders to be great commission Christians to, to be witnesses of his name in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, Jesus ascends back to the Father. They're watching and he actually goes back up into the sky, ascends to the Father to take his rightful place at the right hand of God. And the disciples obediently went back to Jerusalem after this encounter with Jesus because that's what Jesus told them to do. In verse 4, it says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. So after Jesus ascends to the Father, the disciples obediently go back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them and empower them to do what God had called them to do. Now, it says there in verse 12 that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, that phrase, the Sabbath day's journey, is interesting. The, the uh, religious leaders had calculated how far you could go on the Sabbath without sinning. This was a man-made rule that they had developed, and they had calculated that you could go on the Sabbath somewhere between one-half to three-quarters of a mile. So when he says they went a Sabbath day's journey, he's saying they just went a little under a mile's journey from Olivet to where they were staying in Jerusalem. And it says there that they go to the upper room in verse 13. Now, it's interesting in the Greek language, it doesn't say in a upper room, the definite article is there. It says they go to the upper room. So could it be that they returned back to the upper room where they, uh, where they had the Last Supper with Jesus Christ on the night before he was crucified? Some scholars believe that is uh, the case. They go back to not a upper room, but, uh, but the upper room. And when they get back to this upper room, the Bible is very clear in verse, verse 13, they begin to, uh, with one accord, pray. And they're waiting for God to come and empower them with the Holy Spirit so they can be the witnesses God had called them to be. So as we study just these, these few verses on the early church and their practice of prayer preceding the movement of God on the day of Pentecost, there is much to learn. As a matter of fact, I want to share with you today four prayer principles. Four prayer principles. I want you to jot these down there in your notes and follow along with me because there is much for us to learn today. Prayer principle number one, and this is really encouraging. This is really going to help you today. You ready? Prayer is something that any 
Christ follower can do. Prayer is something that any Christ follower can do. Now look what it says there in verse 13 about who had gathered together in the upper room. It says, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, and it mentions 11 of the original 12 uh, disciples. Now we know that Judas was not there. Judas had uh, committed suicide after he betrayed Jesus Christ, and next week we're going to see how they chose uh, Judas's replacement. We'll see that at the end of Acts chapter 1. But it mentions the, the other 11 disciples, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's a, another Judas, one of the original 12 disciples. And so 11 of the 12 disciples that Jesus called were gathered together to pray, but that's not, that's not all, who was, uh, that's not all uh, who was gathered in that place. Also, we see that there were the women followers of Christ. It says there in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. This speaks of the, the, the growing contingent of women that had followed Jesus Christ to minister to him, to serve him, to bear witness to him. You can read about these women all throughout the Gospels. We know that there was a group of women there at the cross when Jesus was being crucified. The disciples were nowhere to be found, but the women were there watching their, their Savior being crucified. And so this group of women has gathered together with the disciples to pray. And it, it also mentions there Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now it might uh, be interesting to you to note, this is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. And she's mentioned here as gathering in the upper room with the disciples to pray. Now notice here, this is interesting that the disciples are praying with Mary, not to Mary. There's no, biblical, uh, there's no biblical standard for praying to Mary. You never see that in the Bible. Mary was a follower of Jesus, uh, just like the other disciples were followers of Jesus. She gave birth to Jesus, which was an extraordinary privilege. But she uh, was a sinner that needed a Savior, just like all the other sinners that were saved in that room. And they weren't praying to Mary, they were praying with Mary. They were praying to uh, the Father through Jesus Christ. Also, we notice that the half-brothers of Jesus are there. Look what it says in verse 14. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, we know from John chapter 7 that there was a time when his brothers, his half-brothers, the biological children of Joseph and Mary, did not believe in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Joseph was not his biological father. And so these brothers were half-brothers. And John 7 indicates they did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But here, they're gathering together to obediently pray. And so there had been a change. They now were believers. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're gathered together to pray. Also, verse 15 indicates that there are some others. Look what it says in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So about 120 folks uh, gathered together in this upper room to pray. Now, verse 14 uses the word all. It says in verse 14 that all these were devoting themselves to prayer. Every one of them were experiencing the privilege of prayer and enacting the practice of prayer, which leads us to this conclusion. Prayer is a privilege 
that is given to all believers in Christ. Prayer is a privilege that is given to all believers in Christ. The Bible teaches that when you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you now have access to God. You have been adopted by God. He is now your Father. And because your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can now go directly into the Holy of Holies, directly into the very presence of God, and talk to Him anytime you want. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? You can go to God, talk to Him anytime you want, and stay as long as you want. There's no... no, uh, boundaries. It's just you can come and talk to God anytime you want if you've been saved by Jesus Christ. It's a privilege that is given to all believers in Christ. And that, pr- that word privilege is important. Think about the awesome, awesome reality that you and I get to talk to God. Let that settle on you for a moment. We get to talk to God. Wow. Now, there are three aspects of prayer I see throughout the Bible of of Christians enacting this privilege. There's what I call consecrated prayer. That's what Jesus talked about in John or Matthew 6 when he said, When you pray, go into the inner room by yourself, shut the door behind you. It's private prayer. You're on your knees in the presence of God. You're seeking his face. You're consecrated. You're set apart. Just you and him, that quiet time before the Lord. That's that's consecrated prayer. But the Bible also teaches there's conversational prayer. Uh, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Pray continually, and so we are called to pray throughout the day. We're, you know, going to work, uh, going here, going there, in our car, on our commute, in between meetings. We can just, we can just talk to God and maintain an attitude of prayer and, and, and live in dependence upon Him. That's, that's conversational prayer. But the third type of prayer is what's being mentioned here in this passage. That's corporate prayer, where God's people get together to pray for God to move. And I believe that a healthy prayer life and a, a praying church is a church where all three aspects are in practice. Where God's people are getting in their prayer closet and praying. Where God's people are going throughout their day talking to God. And God's people are regularly gathering together corporately to pray. That is the privilege of prayer that you and I all enjoy. So prayer is a privilege that is given to all believers in Christ. We need to understand that and put it into practice. And here's the next principle about any Christ follower praying. No matter your personality, no matter your spiritual gifts, no matter your circumstances, you can be a part of advancing the kingdom of God by praying. And we'll say it again, that's so important. No matter your personality, no matter your spiritual gifts or circumstances, you can be a part of advancing the kingdom of God by praying. Now, now all three of those ideas are important. No matter your personality. You know, there are people in the body of Christ that are outgoing and gregarious and extroverted and they have no problem talking to folks. They have no problem getting in front of folks. That's just the way God has wired them. There are other folks in the body of Christ that are introverted, that want to stay behind the scenes. They don't want to, don't want to get in front of people that, that like to serve, you know, where no one sees them serving. And, and God makes us all different, doesn't he? Extroverts, introverts, outgoing, 
shy. We're all different. That's how God makes us. But listen, it doesn't matter if you're extroverted or introverted. You can pray, right? You can talk to God. And it doesn't matter what your spiritual gift is. The Bible teaches that when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been given a spiritual gift to employ in the service of the body of Christ. And and as you serve and you learn how God has made you, you discern what your spiritual gift is. But we all have a spiritual gift. But listen, this isn't a spiritual gift. Prayer is a privilege that everybody can practice no matter what your spiritual gift is, right? We all have the same privilege of prayer. And it doesn't matter your circumstances, if you're homebound because of physical illness, you can pray. If you are at your desk, on the job, guess what? You can pray. If you are in a school and public prayer has been banished, guess what? You can pray right there in the quietness of your own heart. You can talk to God right there. And guess what? Nobody can stop you from doing that. You can pray. No matter where you find yourself in life, if you know Jesus Christ, there is is access to God available to you. No matter where you find yourself, what you're doing, whatever your circumstances are, whether things are really good or really bad, really wonderful, really difficult, no matter where you are in life, you can pray. You can talk to God. Prayer is something that any Christ follower can do. It's a privilege. And so that's the first prayer principle. Prayer is something that any Christ follower can do. Here's the second prayer principle. This is important. Prayer unites hearts like nothing else. Prayer unites hearts like nothing else. Look what it says in verse 14. All these with one accord. Everybody say one accord. One accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Then it uses the word Together, together with the women and men, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So with one accord, together they are praying. And we see this unity in the body of Christ as they pray together. Now I want you to know this. If a church prays together, it will stay together. We live in a day where, where the idea of local church has become a laughingstock in many quarters because churches fuss and fight so much, Right? You go into a community and there's Harmony Baptist Church and you drive down the road a couple miles and you see New Harmony Baptist Church. Think about that for a moment. And and, and if you have a church background, probably there's been a time in your life when you've been in something that was not real pleasant in a local church uh, assembly. It's very easy to get to a place where where churches and church members begin to fuss and fight and and are distracted by things that just do not matter. But see, prayer unites hearts. Prayer builds unity. You say, wait, why does prayer build unity? Well, if you look there in your notes, prayer unites because you are talking to the same person, God, about the same thing 
with the same goal. When you get together and pray and ask God to move and save souls and send out laborers into the harvest and change lives and rescue families and set people free from addiction, when you're praying over those sorts of things to the same person about the same things with the same goals that God would be glorified, you can't help but be united. And think about this. Prayer unites because it keeps your eyes on the Lord. When you're talking to God in prayer, what are you doing? Your, your eyes are on Him, not on each other, not on the color of the carpet. Your eyes are on Him. And it's really hard to fight with someone when your eyes are upon Jesus. Right? It is. And so prayer unites because it keeps your eyes on the Lord. The church that prays together will stay together. Doesn't mean we won't see things differently. Doesn't mean we won't ever have any disagreements. Doesn't mean that we won't ever, you know, come to issue that we have to work through biblically. But it does mean that if we are praying, if our eyes are on the Lord together and we're praying to the same person about the same things for the same goals, it'll be hard. It'll be so hard to fuss and fight. It really will. And so we see them in this upper room and and they're praying, and they're united, and they're going to make a decision in the next passage we'll study next week, and men, they're all on the same page. They're all on the same page. Here's a third principle concerning prayer. Number one, prayer is something that any Christ follower can do. Number two, prayer unites hearts like nothing else. Number three, prayer is hard work. Prayer is hard work. It's a, it's, it has incredible power, but it's a challenging practice. Look what the Bible says in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That word devoting is an interesting word. It's a present tense participle. And the present tense indicates that this was continual action. So you could literally read it like this. The, in verse 11, all these with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer or continually engaged in prayer. That's what the word means. It's not just, hey, let's have a quick prayer and go home. They were united in continual prayer. Now, this was probably a 10-day prayer meeting. So wait, how do you, how do you know that? We know, we know that Jesus uh, died on uh, the Friday of Passover Weekend, right? We know that it's well attested in the Bible. And we know that, that he stayed on the earth 40 days uh, after his resurrection. The Bible tells us that. It tells us that uh, early on in uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 3. And we know that Pentecost took place, that feast took place about 50 days after Passover. So just do the math. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He was on the earth 40 days, ascended to the Father, and then there was 10 more days, and then the day of Pentecost came, which we will study in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the followers of Christ. And so from the time Jesus ascends until the day of Pentecost, the only information we have about the early church is they were gathered, taking care of some issues, but they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now think about that. A 10 day prayer meeting. I mean, in the big scheme of things, 10 days is not that long, but think about you setting aside 10 days of your life 
10 days of your busy schedule to focus predominantly on prayer. I mean, that's just, that's just beyond the realm of possibility in our busy day, isn't it? 10 days of prayer. But they were united together, continually devoting themselves to prayer. 10 days. I want, to, I want you to know that praying 10 days is not easy. Praying 10 minutes is not easy. It, it's, a, it's a challenging practice. Why? Because we're busy. We are easily distracted. We're not people of the word, so we don't have a vocabulary to talk to God regularly. We run out of things to say. And there are all sorts of reasons why prayer is so challenging. Listen, Satan doesn't want you to pray, right? So he's going to bring the resources of the demonic realm against you to stop you from praying. Your flesh doesn't want to pray. It's going to, it's going to, 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 to fight against praying. The world gives you all sorts of things to be distracted with. Prayer is a challenge. So here's the key for you and for me. We must be intentional. Listen to me. Prayer warriors don't happen by accident. We must be intentional and faithful in prayer. So let me ask you a question. Romans chapter 12, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writing to the churches there says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now listen, could you look at your prayer life and say, I'm devoted to prayer. I'm devoted to prayer. It is a key aspect of my life. It is a, it is a priority in my life. I'm devoted to prayer. Probably very few of us in this room could say, I'm devoted to prayer. And so what will you do? What adjustments will you make so that you will be intentional and faithful in prayer? You see, persevering prayer is not easy But it is rewarding. It is rewarding. Over in Luke chapter 18, Jesus shares a parable with his disciples and it says he shared the parable with them so that they would pray and not lose heart. They would pray and keep praying. They would would pray with perseverance. And and the the parable is of of this widow that wants justice and she keeps going to this judge that doesn't want to be bothered and and she keeps going to him over and over and over again and finally says, okay, lady, I'll, I'll, I'll give you what you want. And the point is clear. A dishonest or, or worldly judge was moved by the perseverance of this widow woman. How much more will a good and faithful God be moved by our perseverance in prayer. Listen to me. Sometimes I believe that God withholds answers to prayer just to see how much we really want what we're asking for. You ever prayed for something, asked for it one time, doesn't happen, you say, okay, well, well. I tried. And it's as if the Lord's in heaven saying, well, they obviously didn't want it very bad. But when you devote yourself to prayer... And you continually 
pray and call out to God, you're showing God the intensity of your desire to to have what you are asking for. Persevering prayer is not easy, but it is rewarding because God responds to persevering prayer. Ian Bounds called it importunate prayer. God responds to persevering prayer. And so, devote yourself continually. Get in the prayer closet. Talk to God throughout your day. Gather with other believers. But devote yourself to prayer. Prayer is hard work. If it were easy, everyone would be doing it, right? If prayer were easy, every church would be a praying church. But it's not. It's hard work. So you have to be intentional and faithful. But there's a fourth principle I want you to see this morning about prayer. We've said that prayer is something that any Christ follower can do. Prayer unites hearts like nothing else. Prayer is hard work, but fourth and last... Prayer precedes great movements of God. Prayer precedes great movements of God. We see this pattern throughout the book of Acts. That that prayer precedes great movements of God. It's interesting to note that the book of Acts does not begin with the monumental day of Pentecost. We'll get to Pentecost, chapter 2. It's awesome what we're about to study. But it doesn't start with Pentecost. It starts with a church, a a group of believers that had gotten orders from Jesus and they stop and gather and pray for 10 days. That's how it starts. Because we see that before there was a Pentecost, a mighty movement of God, there's a small group of people praying fervently. We see the same thing over in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The church in Jerusalem is gathering together in homes daily to pray and it says the Lord was saving people every day. As people prayed every day, guess what? God saved people every day. There's the evangelism strategy. Right? I mean, they prayed every day. People getting saved every day. Prayer precedes mighty movements of God. Over in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, we see that after uh, Peter and, and John are released from from their trial and from their prison. Uh, the believers gather together and pray for boldness in response to the threats of the religious leaders. The Spirit fills them. God shook the meeting place and they went forth proclaiming the good news with boldness. A great revival after they gathered together to pray. Over in Acts chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 9, God brings together Peter and Cornelius. So Cornelius, a God-fearer who wanted to know God but didn't know about Jesus, could hear the gospel and be saved. And God connects them through visions and dreams. And Peter preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his household get saved. But guess what? In Acts 10, verse 1, Cornelius is praying. Acts 10, verse 9, Peter's praying. And God works in that to bring them together so that Cornelius and his household might be saved. In Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 12, Peter is freed from prison by an angel. And it says that before he was freed, the believers were gathered together to pray. And he goes and finds the believers gathered in a house, and guess what he finds them doing? They were praying And so we see these great movements of God all throughout the book of Acts. 
And we see these great movements of God preceded by prayer. So we see this pattern throughout this book we're going to study. We're going to see it again and again and again and again. But listen, we also see this pattern throughout the history of Christianity. We also see this pattern throughout the history of Christianity. The the biblical pattern is true throughout the history of the church. For example, in the 1720s and 1730s, many American and British evangelicals felt that true religion was dying. I mean, people were, were, were just uninterested in the things of God, and, and people were walking away from God in, in multitudes, and, and the people that knew Christ were burdened over the spiritual apathy of the people in their day and time. So they began to pray for, a, for an awakening. They began to pray for a revival, and in 1734 and 35. That spark of revival came through the preaching ministry of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Great spiritual complacency. And yet people began to pray. And God sent a revival called the First Great Awakening. On July 1st, 1857, there is a quiet businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear. His denomination appointed him as a missionary to a certain neighborhood in New York that did not have uh, any evangelical witness. So he's a businessman, a, a, a layman, but he agrees to go to this area of the city and be a witness for Christ. And he gets to this neighborhood and he looks around, he has no idea what to do. So he begins to plan a meeting for prayer. And, and Jeremiah Land Fear. Uh, types up these, these flyers inviting businessmen to a uh, noontime prayer meeting to be held on Wednesdays every week. He distributed this flyer throughout the neighborhood, and on the first day at 12 noon, September 23rd, 1857, the door was opened, and this businessman, Jeremiah Lanfear, walks in the room to meet for prayer. Only one problem. No one was there. He prayed for 10 minutes by himself. He prayed for 15 minutes by himself. 20 minutes. 25 minutes. But then at 12.30, he heard a step on the stairs. The first person appeared, then another and another and another, until there were six people present for that first prayer meeting. On the following Wednesday, October 7th, there were 40 people gathered to pray. Thus, in the first week of October 1857, it was decided to hold a meeting daily for prayer instead of weekly. Within six months, listen, listen to this, New York City, within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York. And within two years, there were a million converts swept into the kingdom of God. A million converts. And it all started with this layman named Jeremiah Lanfear that said, I don't know what to do, so let's just start praying. And God sent a mighty, mighty revival. Prayer precedes great movements of God. I like what John Piper says about Jeremiah Lanfear. 
He says, undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city, and it was of such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, simply an incredible movement of the people to pray. Now here's my question for us to consider. Is there anything stopping God from doing that again? Can you think of any good reason that God would not respond to the fervent, concentrated, continual, devoted prayers of His people? I can't find one biblical reason that God would not respond to a repentant, broken prayerful people and move in their midst and through them to touch a lost and dying world. Why? Because the Bible bears it out, church history bears it out, that prayer precedes great movements of God. I believe, listen, with all my heart, I believe that the problem in America is a prayer problem. It's a prayer problem. And I believe that the church just hasn't gotten desperate enough yet to pray. What's it going to take? Terrorism, Ebola, what's it going to take for us to see the desperation all around us? And the need for us to gather and call out to God who is our only hope. The only hope for our nation is Jesus Christ. And what's it going to take for us to get desperate enough to pray for more than 11 minutes, to pray for 10 days, or even 11 years for God to move? So if I had to summarize this this sermon for you, if I had to give it to you in one sentence, I could have saved you a lot of time, right? If I had to give it to you in one sentence, here it is. We, you and I, need to better comprehend prayer's potential so we will be motivated to put it into practice. That's what this Acts passage does in my life. It helps me to appreciate a new and afresh prayer's potential so that we will be motivated to put it in to practice. I, I wonder, coming real close, I wonder if we really believe prayer will work. I wonder if we really believe that. Because if we really believed in the power and potential of prayer, we would be intentional and fervent and diligent to put it into practice.